uh, a read through um, talking about, uh, I really want to get to verses 46 through 55, Mary's song, um, but there's a lot to talk about before that, so um, Lord willing we'll be able to get verses 26 to 55 in uh, tonight. And I want to put this list in front of you, and maybe it will uh, frame some of your thoughts, because if you have questions, I really want you to ask them. Um, you don't necessarily have to write this list down. This is mainly for me and for y'all to, to kind of remind me to try to address these things. Um, but the first one is her virginity. And then I'm going to put a dash here and put this controversial word with a question mark. Um, two, her sinlessness, and again, unless you think I'm advocating for that position, I'm going to put a question mark. Uh, three, uh, the worship, another question mark, of Mary. Uh, and then four, the song. Does anybody know what Mary's song is called? Magnificat. Yeah, the Magnificat. Very good. You know why it's called that? Because was it her song was magnifying the glory of the Lord? Yeah, um, but Magnificat is the first word of the song in Latin. Um, yeah, and I'll talk about the place of that if, if time permits. And then some uh, biblical theology, basically like taking the theme of Eve and kind of running it through, um, running it through Mary. And the reason I want to bring that to your attention is because there is uh, a lot of speculation. Uh, there, I think there's some truth to it, but it can go a little bit far uh, because. Mm -hmm. When you highlight Mary as a new and greater Eve, you need to think about their husbands, right? Eve's husband was Adam. Well, who's the greater Adam? Jesus, right? Jesus is not Mary's husband, right, per se. As a Christian, um, Mary uh, would have been uh, part of the bridegroom of Christ, so in that sense, sure. Uh, but anyway, that we'll get to that, maybe. And if you have questions about those things or things related to the text that I don't uh, scratch your itch on, please, again, feel free. All right, so let's start with uh, Luke 1, verse uh, 26. Uh, remember, the beginning of Luke 1 uh, gives you uh, the first four verses is Luke's preface. Right? You know how a lot of books you, you read today will have a short uh, preface. Luke has a really short one, right? Uh, four verses there. And if you've read the book of Acts recently, there's also a preface just like this to Acts because Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. Um, some people like to speak of Luke's gospel as uh, Luke part one and Acts as Luke part two uh, because he uh, has a preface and, and has similar aims in both of them. Uh, but then in verses 5 to 18, you've got the appearance of the angel Gabriel 
uh, to John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, and then uh, starting at verse 18, I should say 5 to 17, but starting at verse 18 is when Zacharias is uh, made dumb, right, where he can't speak uh, because of his doubt, and then uh, Elizabeth's conception is verses 24 and 25. So we'll start with verse uh, 26, and I'll read a bit and then start talking. All right, so uh, verse 26, And in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. All right, so uh, let's talk for just a moment. Um, First thing I want you to notice is that this same angel appeared to uh, John the Baptist's father, right? He's the same one. Uh, If you look up at verse 19, uh, it says, And the angel answering said to him, which is John the Baptist's father, I am Gabriel, right? So Gabriel has a very prominent role in these two stories, and it's showing kind of the unity of those two stories, that the same angel was bringing this, uh, the news of basically God fulfilling all of these promises from the Old Testament, and he's going to deliver it to one woman or to one man and then uh, to uh, one woman, at least in, in Luke's account here. Um, another thing is that Jesus is brought into the line of David. Uh, now, there's some different interpretations of, of kind of how to take this. I was just reading Matthew Henry a few minutes ago, and he says that Mary was also of the line of David, but I... I'm not aware of a verse that says that. Um, I do know that here in Luke 1 and in the genealogies of Matthew 1 and Luke 3, Joseph is in the line of David. And there are a lot of people who tie uh, the importance of Joseph to the fact that he was in the line of David and that uh, it was um, a work of mercy in his own life, a work of, of love for the purpose of God to... Um, you know, Mary was not yet married to him, and she conceived, but that showing Joseph's faith and the trust and the promises of God that he would take this, this promised one into his own line, knowing that he had to be in the line of David. But we have here, uh, at least in verse uh, 27, a direct reference to Joseph, who was of the house of David. And uh, yes, ma'am. Decades and decades ago, someone told me, mm-hmm. okay, we, we know where the lineage in the Bible is of Joseph. And the other one that's very similar is supposedly of Mary. Right. Um, supposedly is the important word there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was looking at both of those before y'all got here, and both Matthew 1 and Luke start with Joseph. Um, Matthew 1 mentions Mary, but not Mary's father. It mentions Joseph's father. And it says, he begat Joseph, who was the husband of Mary. Um, so that's, that's something I'm looking further into. Uh, maybe I looked into it in seminary and I've forgotten. It's very cloudy in my mind. Uh, yeah, but I thought somebody said it was way back, a number of generations. Yeah. 
It's possible. I mean, I know Matthew Henry wouldn't have made it up. He probably heard it from somewhere. Yeah, unless, um, you know, somebody's brother, uh, you know, and there goes the line. It's possible, yeah. Yeah. When Genealogy was married, one was Joseph. And it goes back to a curse that was placed on the family after Solomon. I can't remember who mm-hmm. the names were. Um, but, and I, I'm not saying, I, I still don't know. I haven't come to yeah. any conclusions after doing the study, but that uh, um, there was a really important reason for how the, for it to be both, you know, both of them coming through the line of David, and it was uh, like a, uh, I can't remember the word, but it was where they, uh, it was redeemed, basically, from that curse. Sure, yeah, kind of like uh, where you have Rahab, right, brought into the line of Jesus, right, mm-hmm. that she's becomes a descendant of his through redemption, more mm-hmm. or less. Um, and that's, you know, very possible. I'm, I'm not saying one way or the other. I just, I know as I look at the genealogies, Mary's name is not mentioned. So I'd like to know if she is in the line of David. Uh, because <laughs> I've taught a lesson, I think it was the men's Bible study last year or year before, on the importance of Joseph adopting Jesus, right? Because that showed his understanding of the promise of God and how integral it was for him to take this woman that he was espoused to. Um, anyway, uh, so in verse 27, uh, the word virgin is used twice, right? to a virgin, a spouse, to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Again, uh, showing the importance of the fact that she was a virgin. Right, That specific word is used in our creed. She was, he was born of the virgin Mary, not just born of Mary. Right. Um, don't let anybody ever tell you that the virgin birth is not important. Right. It is absolutely important and is integral to the gospel and uh, the fact that Jesus was conceived without a sin nature right? because he had to be conceived by um, a woman who um, had not done anything uh, to conceive. Uh, let's call it that. Um, and then in verse uh, 28, uh, this is one of the more fun verses because uh, various interpretations of the passage depend on how you translate the word. Um, it says, And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, She was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. So the first important word, the one I was bringing up, is the King James translates translates it as hail, right? We don't really use hail that way anymore. Uh, The New King James says rejoice. Uh, The NIV, the ESV, and the New American Standard all say greetings, right? Trying to... uh, not flatten it out in a, you know, a negative sense to make it unimportant, but kind of trying to empty some of its baggage because of things like uh, the perpetual virginity and uh, supposed sinlessness of Mary that have been taught to, to make it clear that um, the angel is not offering praise to Mary in the way that the angels praise Jesus, right? Hebrews 1 speaks very clearly of all the angels worship the Son of God. 
And uh, for that reason, a lot of uh, newer translations have gone with other words than uh, hail. Uh, but, you know, the way it was used then is similar to the way we use those words now. Rejoice, right? That's, uh, you know, praise the Lord kind of thing. Um, but also, uh, greetings is, I would say, sufficient as well. And a question begins to arise in my mind as I look through this. And tell me what y'all think about this, or tell me what your thoughts are on this question. Are these accolades offered to Mary because of what she already was or what she was about to be? Do you understand the question? Was it, you are already these things because of, like, John the Baptist's father, father and mother being described as blameless, right? Because of her holiness is basically what I'm getting at. Are these words offered here to Mary prior to her conception of Christ because of her holiness, or are they offered because of what she's about to become as the mother of the Lord? How do, you, how do y'all read it when you... Right, and you have found favor mm. with God. Right. So. Yeah. Right. That's how I take it too. And, and if you read her song, yeah. boy, she knew scripture. She right. Knew she was not dumb. Right. Exactly. She knew that the Messiah was coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's that's exactly how I take it as well. That it's a recognition of her um, her faith, right? Her her holiness uh, before the Lord. That she was indeed dare we say, qualified to do this, right? Somebody had to do it, right? Because it had been promised from Genesis 3. And uh, Mary was uh, definitely uh, qualified in that sense. Um, So when he calls her highly favored, uh, the Lord is with her. When he says that phrase, the Lord is with you, uh, I wrote down here in my notes that he is not telling her something that she didn't know, right? Right? I don't know that I've heard it necessarily preached and taught this way, but at least the implication sometimes to me has been that this is like a conversion experience for Mary. And I don't really think that's what's going on, right? Um, I think that the angel is showing up to a holy woman and telling her that she has been chosen to carry the seed that had been promised from Genesis 3. And, you know, with that, you would understand her responses that uh, she was overwhelmed. Uh, He is indeed, uh, as I think we all agree, acknowledging that she was godly. Uh, And this was her current state before the announcement, and that she was among the most blessed of women because of her godliness in that uh, time already. Any thoughts on those two verses before I move on to verse uh, 30? So verse 30, remember verse 29, she's frightened. She casts it in her mind. She, um, I think some translations say like she held it in her mind. Like what, what, what's going on? She meditated on it. Verse 30, and the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Right? And as you pointed out, like it's kind of basing it in not just the present, but in the past. Right? Uh, she found favor with God. And this reminds me of two people in Scripture. There are, are plenty of others, but 
the first person it reminded me of was Noah, right? That same thing is said of Noah, right? In light of uh, the coming flood, God chooses Noah to be his preacher of righteousness, as the New Testament said, but also to be the one who uh, would construct the ark and his family would be saved as well. Um, But the other person is Job, because Job is commended by God, right? Uh, and in the same way here, the angel Gabriel is not saying something other than what God had sent him to say. He, uh, so we could say that um, Mary is being commended by God through the angel Gabriel. And, of course, uh, blessing upon blessing is going to be Upon her, she has found favor with God. Therefore, this thing is about to happen: that she is going to be the mother of the Lord. Um, You know, something I can't relate to, but I can see it from the outside, and I could talk to my wife about it. Is just the joy of conceiving in general, right? The joy of having a child. But could you imagine the joy of being the mother of the Savior of the world, right? It's just, it's beyond what we can conceive for sure. But you begin to understand just the magnitude of this passage and of this moment. That this idea had been in play since Genesis 3. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And many people will offer you kind of like an interpretation uh, of the Old Testament with this idea in the background that all the godly women throughout uh, Israel in the Old Testament were wondering if they would be the one to bear it, right? to bear him, to bear the seed. And that every time a good man rose up, a redeemer, a judge, right? it's just the one, it's just him. Right? But this makes it clear through the appearance of the angel Gabriel that this man who was being raised up, as we'll get to some of the praise of Christ in verse 32, was different than all the others. Right? He was being conceived differently, and that this Savior had indeed, uh, he was coming. And in verses uh, 31 to 35, let's go there really quick and look through some of the things that are said there. It says, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb. To me, that puts her conception at least in um, the future, right? Don't know how long, uh, but could have been minutes from then, could have been occurring at that moment, I guess. But he says, it's something that hasn't already begun, but you shall conceive in your womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And then said Mary to the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now, as I said a moment ago, apparently the conception hadn't happened yet. uh, But it was, of course, on the the horizon. Um, Now, something occurred to me as I was reading through this, uh, preparing, that Mary, uh, Miss Wanda, I think it was you, brought up her knowledge of the Old Testament. Um, Mary hears three Old Testament names here. Because uh, if you know, uh, Jesus in Greek is Joshua. That's why if you read the King James in the book of Hebrews, sometimes when it talks about Jesus, it says Joshua, 
But here, she hears the name Joshua, she hears the name David, and she hears the name Jacob. So this is grounded in Old Testament reality, these things that she would have, would have known. But again, as we said, she was a godly woman, and she would have known the Old Testament scriptures. Imagine right, the mindset, uh, the way that her heart likely would have been racing because she knew these stories, and she was historically closer to them than we are, so it would have been a more kind of present memory as it were, right? Because, you know, we feel kind of disconnected from the Scriptures sometimes because of the distance of time. But thank the Lord for the Spirit that brings us to understand them. Uh, but her mindset of what her first thoughts might have been uh, is really something to, to kind of think about. Um, you know, that he is going to be named Joshua, right? Yes, Jesus, but uh, that's the uh, English rendering of the term. Uh, so she would have heard these three different names. That she's going, He's going to be like Joshua is, of course, an implication that he's going to be in the line of David. They knew all these promises. They were waiting on this king from the line of David that would have a, uh, an eternal throne. Uh, but they also were waiting on one uh, from the line of Jacob who would reign over the house of Jacob forever. Right? Uh, quite um, lofty thoughts there. Uh, another thing to talk about Jesus, uh, it says that he shall be great. Right? He's going to be a great man. He shall be called the son of the highest. Right, That's a title, uh, speaking of him being the son of God. And uh, more Old Testament language, uh, the Lord God. Right? You read your Old Testament, that's used over and over again, that name. Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. Sometimes he's just called Lord, sometimes he's just called God. But it's very Old Testament language that's not often used in the New Testament, unless it's quoting Old Testament Scripture, Lord God. Right? That, uh, to give it you know, a translation into English, uh, the Jehovah Elohim. Right? The, uh, some people like to say Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, the plurality of his perfect holiness, Jehovah Elohim. He will fulfill the covenant made with David in this son that Mary is going to give birth to. And uh, the last thing uh, from this little section here is that he will reign over the house of Jacob. Right? So lots of imagery there, lots of understanding that Mary would have had of the Old Testament scriptures. This one that they've been waiting on, she is going to be giving birth to him. Right? You can think about how we wait on things today. Imagine waiting for a Savior right, that was going to be born and then you get to be the one to do it, right? That's what's probably uh, very overwhelming uh, to Mary. And notice that her reply in verse 34 <laughs> only addresses uh, her conception, right? How shall these things be? Not how is God able to raise up a man like this, because they had seen uh, men in the past that would sort of image these titles. But I would say that the question here because of her comment, uh, at, after uh, the beginning of the question, how shall these things be, seeing I know not a man, relates directly to how am I going to conceive? How am I going to be this woman? Right? How am I going to fill this role, seeing that I've done nothing uh, to conceive, right? is the implication there. Then her question is answered, verse 35, and talks about how the 
conception occurs. Now, I gave you uh, the three names in uh, verses 31 to 35 from the Old Testament, but did you notice there are three other names in verse 35? The Holy Ghost, the Highest, and the Son of God. You have all three persons of the Trinity mentioned in that verse. The Trinity is involved in this conception. The Spirit comes down. The Father gives power, or He gives in power. And also the Son is the one who's going to be conceived. Trinity being so clear to us. We read over, I mean, I do at least, read over verses like that all the time, but it's so clear, the various roles of the persons of the Godhead here. Um, A lot of people point out kind of uh, to link this back to uh, creation, uh, how where the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, that is similar language in Greek translations of the Old Testament to how the Holy Ghost broods over the waters. That just as in creation where it was totally dark and void, there was no life, there was nothing, right? That the Holy Ghost hovers over the waters and brings creation out of nothing, as it were. So too, Mary's womb is like the darkness of the creation that had not yet been completed, right? And that imagery is involved here, that just as uh, the earth, as it were, were a womb, for all of creation, so to Mary's womb uh, was um, the place that the Savior of the, and the one who would bring about the new creation was uh, conceived. Um, I kind of dumped a lot on you there the past few verses. Uh, before we go on, do y'all have anything? Any questions or comments? You know, I kind of see this as when Jesus raised the dead. It was all, almost like, you know, the Holy Spirit hovered over the dead. Hmm. And gave him life. Mm-hmm. And so he just gave life. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah. Mary's reaction was different from Zechariah. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Angel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And he should have known the scripture more. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. It's, it, <laughs> isn't it interesting how uh, Zechariah and, and Elizabeth are described as blameless? But he responds that way. Right? And Mary is also praised for her godliness and responds this way. Right? Uh, kind of showing a, a difference in the parents. But also that blamelessness is not perfection. It's just godliness. Um, getting crumbs all over myself here. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because she questions, mm-hmm. right? But it, it's more how you find questions from the book of Psalms, right? Over and over again, right? Um, you know, we're told that, and, and rightly so, right, to doubt God is a sin, but there's a type of doubting God or a type of questioning that's, that's not, right? Where it's not... Sinful to wonder, right? Sinful to say, how can these things be? Lord, I don't really know how to believe this, but I trust you, right? 
that kind of mindset is really being displayed in, uh, in the life of Mary here. And it certain, certainly commends her uh, to us. And, you know, just very practically, um, you know, Mary's trusting God with arguably the greatest event that happened in human history. God became man. And how difficult is it for us to trust God with the little things, right, that are not cataclysmic over history, <laughs> that he gives us his word and tells us what we all should do, all to do and how to live and how we should behave this way and do this and that and the other and fill our various roles uh, for you as you know, mothers and, and wives and, and daughters and sisters and preparing to be wives and all those things, how God lays this out for you, right? Uh, Mary trusted God with this enormous thing, right? But I've got to trust God in the small, too. Miss Lewis, I think you raised your hand. Yes, I did. Because when we're talking, I'm thinking about this young girl and what's going to happen. Because if it would have been me, oh, what are my parents going to say? Mm -hmm. That would have been my first reaction. Mm hmm. And what would Joseph say? Right. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm sure she had fear. She had fear. Yeah. Certainly. You know, but there's nothing wrong with fearing. Mm -hmm. Just that you fear other people. Yeah. No, I mean, that's just totally natural, right? And um, that is definitely an element, too, that's overlooked, I think, in a lot of the explanations of this passage, right? That she because. Ma'am? She wanted to go to Lisbon. Right. Mm -hmm. Help me. Right. Help me right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Good points. Um, all right. Let's move on to uh, verse 36. Yes. It says, And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. All right, so she's, just to tell you a difference in the times here, she's six months pregnant, and Mary doesn't know yet, right? Just totally difference in the times. I couldn't text her and tell her, right? those kind of things. Uh, verse 37, for with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Right. What a, a wonderful picture of uh, faith-filled submission right? just to the purposes and plans of God. She doesn't ask any questions that the text uh, records for us. Simply, behold the handmaid of the Lord. She's not look at me in a, like a, a boasting sense, but she's talking about herself. Right? I am... The servant is what that means. The servant girl of the Lord. And because of that, be it unto me according to your word. Right? So, honestly, you know, she's talking with Gabriel, but it's almost like she enters into prayer here. Right? Because, you know, again, she's in conversation with Gabriel, but she says, be it unto me according to thy word. And it could be that she's directly addressing God there possible but anyway um the angel departed from her then verse uh mm, yeah verse 39 
It says, And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. It came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. All right. So uh, Mary uh, goes to visit Elizabeth. Um, don't want to get bogged down here, uh, but I will note to you uh, that <laughs> Elizabeth and her understanding in verse 43 uh, is really illuminating, right? Um, because she knows that the one that Mary is carrying is the Lord, right? And she not only honors the Lord, but she honors the Lord's mother in doing this. Right? Who am I? that the mother of my Lord right, would come to me. Right? It's almost like Elizabeth didn't feel worthy to be in her presence, not simply because of who Mary was, but because of who she was carrying. Right. All right, so let's get into the song of Mary. Spend the rest of our time here. Again, this is the uh, Magnificat. Let me take kind of a pause real quick and talk about these things. Um, so Mary as the new or greater Eve, already commented on that a little bit, right? It's, it's uh, possible in some sense because at the beginning of creation, uh, you have Adam and Eve. And at the beginning of the new creation, you in some way have Jesus and, and uh, Mary. But also it breaks down because one, they're not married. And two, the bride of Christ is the church. So, you know, it's questionable imagery, but... Have y'all ever seen that, that painting where it's Mary and Eve standing beside each other? And uh, it's like, I should have got it and put it up on the screen for y'all. If I can do that, let me see. I think I can. Maybe during the next. Does this chord end? We have time. I'll, I'll get to that. But there's a painting, like I said, that a lot of people will um, kind of share online around Christmas time and whatnot. It's Mary and Eve together, and the serpents there, and the apple, and and Mary's pregnant, and it's like Eve is is embracing her and, and talking to her because Eve is being fulfilled in Mary. And there's again a lot of truth to that, but it can get weird really fast. Um, the Magnificat is. Uh, the Song of Mary, um, historically in Christian worship, uh, for uh, the most part, uh, it would be like placed after the Old Testament reading. And why do you think that is? This is not the Old Testament, technically. Why would it be placed there in a service, right? Because it's that what was promised. Exactly, right? that this is a reflection of the fact that we live in the time that these things have been fulfilled. Right? And Mary's song 
after the Old Testament reading would remind you of that every single time you heard it. Um, so the worship of Mary. The reason I bring that up is because that's a uh, an accusation that uh, Protestants um, will often make of Roman Catholics, sometimes Eastern Orthodox, but not to the same extent. Um, and they recognize that tension themselves, the Roman Catholics especially, and they, they have two terms that they use to distinguish the way that they honor uh, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit versus the way they honor Mary. Um, they will often lift Mary and uh, call her a, a co-redeemer, right, because of her place as the, the mother of the Lord, and then that also begins to, to play into the fact how they will uh, pray to Mary rather than to Christ, because if anybody has the Savior's ear, it's his mother, right? I don't know what uh, recent mother-son relationship they've looked at, uh, but that's not always the case, right? Um, but yeah, there's a lot of weirdness that goes on, uh, and I, I certainly reject what I would call the errors of all these positions. I understand some of their deductions, but my argument simply... I hadn't talked about her sinlessness yet. I'll get to that in a second. But my argument simply against that over-elevation of Mary and my argument against her perpetual virginity is the Bible doesn't say any of those things. They are totally unnecessary deductions from the Bible. We have plenty to look at about Mary and to learn of her without ever getting into a question about did she remain a virgin? The Bible doesn't say, right? Or whether uh, whether she has a role in redemption to the to the extent that we could uh, pray to her. Well, you know, they kind of flatten the field anyway and pray to other people too who aren't sinless. Uh, but to kind of even further justify their positions of Mary, it, it's almost like there's. God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and then there's Mary, and then there's the angels, and then there's us, more or less, is, is kind of uh, the way they would break it down. And because she's, all, because she's greater than the angels, even some way in her life, in, in their opinion, uh, they would want to deduce a type of sinlessness. And another reason they want to say that Mary was sinless was because they believe that in some way her sinful nature would have tainted the virgin birth. Right? When in reality, the whole purpose of him being conceived by the Holy Spirit was to prevent that. Right? So they're trying to uh, protect God, as it were, as if he couldn't do it, right? kind of thing. Um, and you know, the logical leap from saying that Mary was sinless would be to say that she also had a conception like Jesus. Some would even go that far. That she was conceived in that uh, special way. So just kind of throwing those things uh, at you. Because if you ever want to make a further study of Mary, you're going to have to wade through stuff like that. Right? Because... Because of those errors, Protestants 
draw, in my opinion, too far away from Mary at times and don't really say much about her. Um, and then also because of those errors, Roman Catholics especially say too much about her. So really to learn anything, you almost have to read Roman Catholic sources to try to get a good con conception of who Mary is. Yes? I have to tell you. All right. I mean, you, you got it. You got it completely. Way back when I was 20 years old, a Catholic young man asked me to marry him. My parents didn't know it. <laughs> so, guess who went and talked to the priest regularly? Me. I did. Oh, yeah. And you would have to. And, yeah, I've heard all those things. And he explained, well, you know, because I had questions. And I asked him, I said, so what is this praying to Mary all about? And he said, well, he said, that's just like if you want, if you really want something, but you know your dad's not going to be in favor of it, you go through your mother. That was the explanation. Isn't that awful to conceive of God that way? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and, and I was asking questions all the time, just kind of like you were saying. And he, he said to me, Louis, you ask so many questions, I'm going to have to get my Bible out and start reading it. God and forbid. I mean, That's it. <laughs> yeah. So you didn't marry this kid like that? <laughs> no. I stopped dating him. Yeah. I mean, the thing you immediately run into is, is not that it just diminishes... Christ and the Lord in general, but that it diminishes your own understanding of what it means to be a Christian, right? Because the scriptures speak abundantly clear that we have immediate access to God through Christ, without a doubt, right? And to add a mediator or a step or somebody who is more gracious than God, what in the world? It's just, I don't it's, think they realize the suffering of Mary when she watched her son die hmm. on the cross even though it was her oh, yeah. Lord. Yeah. You know, you don't ever see, you know, she's elevated, but not on this earth. She right. suffered, you know, mm -hmm. greatly. Yeah. I, I, I can't under, it's hard for me to even think about knowing I'm having a son that's going to be killed and put on the cross. Right. Yeah. Every day would make me nervous. Oh, yeah. Um, that reminds me of that, that verse in Matthew where there's that uh, promise of that, basically, to Mary. Yeah. Yep. Um, let's see. You know how when you want to look for something, you can't find it because you don't really read. You just skim. Uh, but there's that verse in Matthew Simeon. chapter, let's see. Do, 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 do. Mm. Yeah, it might be. It could be Luke. You might be right. Yeah. Let's see. Luke chapter 2. Um, let's get him here. Yes, yes, that's it. Yes, thank you. Um, Luke chapter 2, verse 34. Like Miss Wanda says, Simeon. Simeon's song. Uh Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against, yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, 
right? Thy own shall pierce through your own soul also, right? right. So in my mind, this is a, a, a foreshadowing of the, not just the death of Christ, but that puncture that he received, right? that she would, uh, because of the bond of a mother and a son, right, experience a pain uh, in her soul as well. I'm sure she does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. No. Right. And then uh, let's look at the song, the Magnificat. I introduced it to you a little bit. Uh, verse 46. Uh, I'll read through 55. It says, and... Uh, yes, 55. Uh, and Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done, great, done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath holpen or helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. So let me just point out a few words here, uh, working through the Magnificat. And again, stop me if you want to uh, say anything. Uh, so the first thing, in verse 46. Uh, she bases the magnifying of the Lord in her soul, right? Uh, that to the, the innermost parts of her being, uh, she magnified the Lord. Again, think of the glories and wonders of conceiving and having a child, and then add to that the fact that the child is God most high. He is the Son of God, right? You can feel it in your bones when you have a baby. The joy when that child comes out. Imagine, again, if it's God most high that you're being, that is uh, the one whom you've been given. So when she says, my soul doth magnify the Lord, you can begin to understand it. Uh, but the word magnify, I was reading this with Jude and Ames last night. Remy had already fallen asleep, of course. Um, but we were talking about how the word here is magnify, a magnifying glass. It was what I used to, to explain uh, to them. Uh, just think of the fact that Mary is saying she made the Lord's name bigger with her praise. Right? Not that it technically can be, right? That he can't be made greater, but that that's what praise does. And that Mary was experiencing and explaining that here. That her soul is uh, experiencing or proclaiming the greatness of the Lord. And then a, a parallel term in verse 47, uh, it says, My soul, verse 46, verse 47 says, And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Now, question. If Mary was sinless, why would she proclaim God to be her Savior? What would he be saving her from? Right? How could she participate in that? She could, if she was sinless and didn't need a Savior, technically, she would say, God, the Savior, maybe. Right? But she says, God, my Savior. Right? The one 
whom she conceived and carried and gave birth to and nursed and raised and watched die was the one who was her very own Savior. Right? What an image. And this prefigures it for us. Right? So she's not only rejoicing in the one who has given her this message, but rejoicing in her own son. Uh, then verse uh, 48, uh, her humility is, is shown here. She describes herself of being of low estate. He hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. Right? Again, what does he mean? What does she mean here? How did he regard her? Well, not just that the angel appeared to her to speak in general, because that happens occasionally, right? In Scripture, angels appear to people. But here, her... Um, her humility, the fact that she calls herself of low estate and a handmaiden, a servant of the Lord, she is recognizing that God has regarded her in giving her this privilege. Right? He has regarded me. He has looked upon me and seen me in my humility and given me this great privilege. Um, again, it's her humility. And as I talked about earlier, this is not some girl who didn't understand the Old Testament scriptures or who wasn't a believer, though she was very young. Um, there's debate about her age. Most people think between like 14 and 16, something like that. Um, but that she was in full understanding of what was happening as, as humanly as possible, right? That she was going to be the one whom all godly women had desired to be. Um, and then, secondly, how in that verse it speaks of all generations shall call her name blessed. Right? Have you ever thought about this, that uh, ever since this moment, that every time somebody talks about Jesus, they basically talk about Jesus' mom, and they're talking about Mary, right? Uh, how, again, exalted she is, not just in Scripture, but in history. Rightly so, right? Avoiding those errors, but she is the most exalted woman to ever live, right? And she is remembered, from generation to generation. Not just her name is preserved in Scripture, not just her, uh, the acts of, some of the acts of her life, but the fact that she is the mother of our Lord. She is eternally bound to Jesus as his uh, mother. And then uh, in verse 49, he continue, or she continues the reasons uh, for which she is praising the Lord. Right? So, uh, you could think of verses 46 and, and 47 as her saying what she's doing, right? She's magnifying the Lord. She's rejoicing in the Lord. And then verses 48 through 55 as the reasons, right? So these are different reasons why her soul is magnifying the Lord and her spirit is rejoicing in God. Verse 49, uh, that he that is mighty hath done to me great things. Wow, that's an understatement, right? And holy is his name. And in verse 50, uh, she recalls one of the uh, often used uh, Old Testament verses or o Old Testament phrases that God's mercy is on those who uh, fear him. Right? Anytime you talk about the fear of the Lord, right, your mind immediately goes to Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, but the Lord had promised to be uh, God to those who would fear him. It's even in uh, I think it's in the Ten, the Ten Commandments, even, that God remembers uh, mercy uh, to the thousandth... No, it doesn't say thousandth generation there, I don't think. Um, let's see here. <clears throat> oh, it says, it says, love me and keep my commandments. I must be thinking about another passage. But anyway, you know the phrase, the, the fear of the Lord, how important that is uh, throughout Scripture. And she 
says that God's mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. So you have that uh, repetition of the idea of generations there in verse 50. And then in verse 51, this is, uh, it's not hard to interpret, but it's, there's a question of what she's referring to when she says this, right? Um, because her soul is magnifying the Lord, her spirit's rejoicing in God, and in verse 48, she's talking about what, you know, what happened to her, how it's a fulfillment of God's promise. In verse 49, he's the mighty one, he's done to me great things. And verse 50 is a reflection on the fact that he's had mercy on her and his people as a whole because um, some of them feared him, but she certainly feared him. So then when you get to verse 51, I think she is still talking about the fact that uh, the fact of basically um, the Messiah's coming, right? That in her giving birth to this one, that God is showing his strength with his arm, right? He has done it in the past, yes, but particularly in this moment, God is showing his strength by giving a woman whose womb was as black and dead and lacking life as uh, the creation before the hovering of the Spirit, right? That, that imagery is there uh, throughout this uh, scene, in my opinion. But God has showed his strength with his arm by giving a virgin this great honor. Let me talk about, let me ask a question real quick before I finish working through this song. I was reading through uh, Matthew Henry uh, this afternoon, and he phrased something in a way that I don't quite get what he's getting at, uh, but it made me think of something else. Do you think that um, we obviously know that the, the Old Testament, like Isaiah 7, predicted that uh, the virgin would conceive, right? So we, knew the, we know the virginity of the woman was necessary. Um, but why not a virgin who was not to be married, right? Why not a virgin who was not in a, a contract or espoused, as uh, the text says? And he says um, that it's in order to show the lofty state of marriage, right? That God had given it to this woman who was in a contract to be married uh, to show how uh, she had done well in choosing to be married, but also it brought to mind this, and Matthew Henry didn't say this, but it's not altogether clear to me if he was referring to it or not, that if he would have chosen, we've kind of dealt with, you know, a virgin who was not married yet, like not uh, to be married, but what about a virgin who was already married, right? Why wouldn't God choose someone like that? Right? It would be harder to say she's a virgin. But I think also, that's, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that one. Um, but also that uh, it would have been scandalous, even more scandalous, that there was a woman who had not known her husband that was in marriage. Right? And in, in a human sense, it would have been, like you said, harder to prove. Um, not that God is in the proving business, per se. He does what he wishes. Uh, but still, he's, I do think he's concerned about that. Um, so God showed his mighty power. Um, he showed his strength with his arm, and he scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. And I, I think here, 
Um, certainly there's plenty of things in mind that we can't be totally sure about, but I, I think what would probably be in mind here would be the prideful people who had tried to bring about uh, the Messiah's salvation in their own way, right? Um, like the various people who had, um, you know, the, the kings in Israel would have known these stories. And they very often ruled as if they were the Messiah, right? especially the wicked kings, right? That they were filling this place. And that God, by choosing Mary, this lowly girl, who was humble and godly, not yet married, but also to be married, right? that she was going to be the one to manifest the power of God. Right? He showed his power by choosing her, and in doing that, he scattered the proud. Right? Think of like a, a, a bunch of roaches when you turn the light on. Right? That God is manifesting his power in that moment, and the proud are just like, boop, right? Another thing about Mary, Joseph was needed to protect her. Mm-hmm. You know, she would need protection. Yeah. That's true. Especially on that journey to Egypt, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the note in my Bible, it actually goes a different way with that. Okay. These verses portray a reversal, quote-unquote reversal, in the end times when those who have abused power will be judged and those who have suffered persecution hmm. will be exalted. Yeah, so I think both of those things are true. I, I think what I said is, is kind of like the immediate application that they would have been thinking of. But also, by extension, it is 100% the case that um, Christ will scatter. right? Because the text says he has, or God has, um, and he certainly will scatter the proud in the imagination of their heart. Indeed, that's part of what the preaching of the gospel is. Right? The scattering of the proud. Right? Think of the way Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians, how those who uh, have the wisdom of the age, right? that they don't understand the wisdom of God. They look on the gospel as um, a stumbling block. Right? They scatter, as it were, from the message of the gospel. And then here, more, more of a similar idea, but notice how uh, um, not it is political in a sense, but it's uh, very earthy, right? That he has put down the mighty from their seats, those who had power and exalted them of low degree. Well, Mary is obviously referring to herself here. This is what God does throughout Scripture. God uh, humbles the proud and, and lifts up the or what am I looking for? God strikes down the proud and lifts up the humble. Um, and that's continuing to be the case here, but uh, very much a understanding of through Mary conceiving Christ, these things have been shown in a way that they had not been shown before. They had been shown before, and as, um, as she brought up, they will be shown again whenever uh, Christ returns. They'll be shown in another visible way. But through the conception of Christ, through the Virgin Mary being the one chosen, all of these things are indeed uh, the case. And I was reminded of, of the Beatitudes in uh, Verse 53, that he has filled the hungry uh, with good things. For God said, blessed are those who are hungry, uh, hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Right? That Mary, uh, there, I mean, there was no more righteous thing that could be given her than to be the mother of the Lord. Right? That was the greatest honor that any woman could ever have. Um, 
and and she has it and she's saying that again if what i say is true about all the women of the old testament the godly women anticipating this possibility that they could be the one to conceive uh this one uh, then it would have been a good thing to desire it to be so and that her hunger for that desire or her hunger and desire for that was filled and the rich he had sent empty away the rich, especially in the New Testament, is very often a reference to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those who had so much but mistreated the people of God so frequently. And when you take a term like that and that understanding and then you read the book of James, it really begins to make a lot of sense. That's not related to our discussion per se, uh, but whenever someone is called rich in the New Testament, it ain't good. Right? It's not a condemnation of wealth per se, but there's certain uh, context to it that is used in the New Testament that's important. Um, uh, yes, and then uh, verse 54 and 55. Uh, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Right? So there's an understanding here by Mary that through her conceiving Christ, that this would not just be to her benefit, but for all the people of God. Right? And we interpret that term Israel in the fullest sense. Uh, all those whom uh, call on the Lord uh, participate in uh, the true Israel of God, that God has, yes, he helped Israel of old in the conception of Christ, but we know they by and large rejected him. But the Israel of God, uh, spiritually considered, the elect of God, have certainly been helped uh, through this act and he did so in remembrance of his mercy. And then she goes back to, when she says, as he spake to her fathers, that's basically everyone between her and Abraham. And then she says, and to Abraham as well. Right? Um, and to his seed forever. So, is she mentioning Eve there when she says to his seed forever? It's possible. But she certainly mentions uh, Abraham because of the prominence uh, that he plays in uh, the Old Testament scriptures, and that Mary was uh, showing the true understanding of what it meant to be of the seed of Abraham. Um, because there's a lot of debate about that in the New Testament, as you know. Um, but she, here she shows that Jesus Christ being conceived by her, all that he would accomplish, all that God had already accomplished, and how she had been the one to uh, be the, the vessel or let's call her the means of grace. <laughs> uh, definitely in a, a loose sense there, but yeah. So that's, uh, that's my notes. That's what I have on Mary. Skipped a little bit, but uh, we're on our time. Um, but we have a, a few minutes. If you guys have any questions or thoughts that you wanted to bring up. Um, okay, so which ver I just read that this morning. Um, I think it's in uh, it's in one of these conception stories where it talks about oh, I remember now um, how when they returned, yes, so Matthew 2 verse 23. So let's go there and that can answer your question. 
So Matthew 2, 23. Remember, Joseph has just fled because of what Herod's doing. Now he's coming back. But Herod's... Uh, I don't think it's Herod's son. Maybe it is. But his name is Archelaus in verse 22. Oh, yeah, it is his son. Sorry. Herod's son uh, is reigning when he returns from Egypt. Then in verse 23, when it says he, it's talking about Joseph... But, look at what it says. He came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth in order that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, what's going on there is what the New Testament writers often do. is They're showing us what we should have understood by those Old Testament passages. So, I would say to use what the Holy Spirit is doing through Matthew and say that that should have been understood at least by uh, the time that it was mentioned in the prophets. However, there is no uh, reference, at least in my Bible, and this Bible has a, an abundance of references, so I think if it was, uh, there's a lot of debate over where Matthew is pulling from yeah, when he I says that. New Bible I got said that he was probably going to live in Bethlehem, mm -hmm. but he decided to go to Nazareth. Mm -hmm. He was born in Bethlehem, right, as we know. So. But to say that he was a Nazarene, Matthew says very plainly in that verse, which was spoken by the prophets. But what verse did that come from? We don't know. Maybe it was uh, something that uh, the people of God were anticipating that was not recorded in Scripture, but that God shows... They had a true anticipation of it from their prophets. That's possible. Um, but also, kind of like when, when Jesus uh, combats this, <clears throat> the Sadducees who denied the resurrection from the dead, and he said, you should have understood the resurrection from the dead from the phrase, uh, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of the living, not the God of the dead. You're like, uh, where's the resurrection from the dead in that? Right? We don't know, per se, but Jesus says that that's the true understanding of that text. So, because Matthew doesn't say uh, which prophet he's getting it from, as sometimes the New Testament writers do, right? They'll say, as Isaiah said, or uh, as Jeremiah said, right? Those kind of things. But he just says here, which was spoken by the prophets. Now, what he could mean there is that... His understanding, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that it was that it was the message of the prophets at large that we should have expected the Savior to have part of his life in Nazareth. Speculation, right? I'm just trying to let the words mean what they actually say. Um, but yeah, when were they supposed to understand that? Well, Matthew seems to say through the prophets. Um, where are the prophets? We don't know. <clears throat> Anything else? One of my um, references is in Judges 13 5, which references the Nazarite. Mm hmm. Nazarite vow. Is that what yeah. it is? Yeah, when Samson's birth is foretold. It says, For the boy shall be a Nazarite dedicated to God from birth, and he shall be unto his spiritual family. 
funny you say that. Yeah, um, there's... So, remember at the end of Jesus' life, where he says, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine? Some people say that that's him taking the Nazarite vow. Uh, when it ended, of course, it's debated if that's what he was doing, but... Um, what was I about to look up here? Oh, um, so in the Old Testament, the way that the Hebrew Bible was grouped together was um, by topic, basically, right? So you had the, um, the first five books we called the Torah, and then you had the prophets, and you had the writings. I can't remember, but maybe the book of Judges is included in the list of prophets. And that is the most direct reference to it, right? That you just uh, read to us from uh, Judges 13. Is the book of Judges one of the prophets? I should know this. This is why you got to keep your seminary stuff you learn fresh. You, what are you looking for? So, like... Hmm. So uh, the way that the, the Old Testament writings were, were broken down by the Hebrews was they were the law, the writings, and the prophets. And some of those uh, classifications that they would put on them are a little bit different than the way that we take them. Right? And I wonder if Judges was uh, the book of Judges. Yes. So that's it. That's got to be it. So the book of Judges is the second book in the prophets, or the second book in Nevaim, which is prophets, right? So Judges is included in the Hebrew canon, as we call it, as among the prophets. Now, do you read the book of Judges as a book of the prophets? No, not, not in the way we think of it, right? But, uh, yeah, that's a great find there, Lindy. Jog my memory. So that would be the clearest reference that I could think of to what the Nazarite implication is there and why Matthew would say, as was spoken by the prophets, right? Because Judges was a book that they counted among the book of the books of the prophets. Which is just kind of mind-blowing, right? Because the way we read Judges. Uh, but Judges is a lot like the prophets, where people aren't listening, messengers are sent, they still don't listen, God in his mercy delivers them, they still don't listen, right? So it's just through judges instead of through prophets. Maybe there's some kind of connection between that term. Yeah, that, Nazarene, Nazarene, you think that take that vow? No, not, not necessarily. No, it would have just been a, a vow that some born in Nazareth would have taken. Anything else? Yeah, we'll drop. The other thing that comes to my attention is about how those who lived in Nazareth were looked down upon. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the note says perhaps God chose this place for his son to emphasize his humanness. Yeah. Yeah. And lowliness, like his mother. Um, uh, but also uh, Bethlehem had a similar reputation um, I think it's Micah 5 22 let's 
speaks about that. But Micah 5 doesn't have 22 verses. I don't know what I'm thinking about. Um, but it's somewhere in there. I'm tired. So my memory, my poor memory is fading. So, Any final thoughts or comments? Well, it says in Luke 1, when the Holy Ghost appeared to her, he was sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So, yes. Okay, so she was from Nazareth. Mm-hmm. That okay. too. Okay. Right. So, that's probably one of the reasons they went there. Yeah. That would have been, you know, common sense, the reason that they would have thought about Nazareth, like from a human perspective. But also, as was often unbeknownst probably to some of them, they're fulfilling Scripture. All right, let's pray. Our Lord, we bless your holy name and thank you.